Okay. What I want to do during this next hour is look at uh, one thing that I omitted from this morning, um, which was in my notes, so I sort of jumped over it. Then I'm going to look at strongholds in culture and hopefully do a little bit about strongholds in past sinful actions as well. Uh, but if we don't cover all that in the next hour, it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll do a bit more. We'll just see. Okay. Because you just can't always cover everything in, a, in uh, a short time like this. It may not seem a short time to you, <laughs> sitting listening. <laughs> but, but to me, yeah, feels a bit of a short time. So... <laughs> Okay. One of the things that, as I said, was in my notes for the last one, but I didn't emphasize, although I referred to it earlier, when we are setting people free from demons, part of the ministry time is to ensure that there's nobody against whom unforgiveness is held. So where people, are, people have been hurt, then forgiveness is an important part of getting set free. Where people have been abused, even. Now, when, when it's abuse, I don't start with forgiveness because when there's been sexual abuse for people as children, you don't start there. You start with ensuring that they understand that... It's not their responsibility and work through the pain of it. But, of course, forgiving the person that did it is part of recognising that it's not their responsibility. It's the other person that did it. They were sinned against. Um, And so... uh, But also, even if if you're bringing deliverance over something else, like some occult involvement or something... Uh, you will find that if there's unforgiveness against somebody else, then that still needs to be uh, forgiven because unforgiveness particularly is something that demonic power can latch onto. And uh, that scripture that I referred to earlier in Matthew 18 where the person was put in prison because of unforgiveness of his fellow servant, actually, the Greek word there used was a a word used for jailers, but actually literally means the tormentors or torturers, which I suppose in that sort of situation may well have been what jailers were. So uh, that's uh, of significance, I, I believe. So forgiveness is very, very important. Cool, let's get going, because we're after lunch, aren't we? I'm feeling after lunch, and you're feeling after lunch. All right? (laughs) Okay, we're all going to refuse to submit to the spirit of after lunch. All right? (laughs) (laughs) Cast of you. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to be careful you do joke about this, though, uh, these sort of things. There was a... 
one of our churches in Istanbul, we've got a, a, uh, two churches now in Istanbul, the one, one which is, for Turkish terms, quite large, and quite a lot of expatriates in it, so it's about 40% expatriate, I guess. But other, once the pastor there, a good friend of mine, um, was having the frustrations with the PA that happily we've not had at all this time. Thank you so much. But very often, you know the problems with PA? That everything's working before the meeting, and then when you actually get to the meeting, all sorts of things don't work. And uh, he, he just made a joke, my, my friend Mike, who leads that church in Istanbul, he made a joke about the demons in the PA, you see. Just a joke. Everyone in the church took it as a joke and just laughed. And then uh, his friends went to a Christian... His, sorry, his daughters went to a Christian school there and they brought some friends to the service... or invited some friends to come to their service who were, who were more conservative evangelicals. And uh, they said, no, no, we can't go into your building. He said, why? We've heard your father cast demons out of PA. <laughs> because this joke got relayed and <laughs> I wish we could no, no. Ah, so. okay so we're going to look now at um, strongholds created through culture um, and just by way of introduction, principality, particular principalities, sometimes called territorial spirits, can affect particular cultures in particular geographic areas because the people of that area have given themselves to those principalities through sins, often for many generations. Now, when I say territorial spirits, I'm using that because that's the term often used and we get references to principalities over areas. Actually, it's less geographic than cultural. So, for example, where it talks about the prince of Greece in the book of Daniel, well, of course, the Greek um, under, under Alexander the Great, it spread right through to northern India, so it was scarcely geographic. What it was was the principality behind that invading empire. And so I see these things as more relating to cultures and uh, or expanding empires, which I believe are often demonically inspired in that sense, uh, rather than simply to a geographic area. So we're now that in most of our major cities in the world, they are multi-ethnic, multicultural cities, then the, it's not that there's a spirit over Sydney, but rather that the different cultures here in Sydney have given themselves over years um, to uh, different powers that can become associated with their culture and therefore people need to be set free from those things. Do you understand? So I'm just redefining what I've said on that. So what does it mean through cultures? Let me give you an example which I use in the book, and some of you have heard me say before, but it's just such a helpful one, really. Um, I went to, I was in India once, in a particular part of India, and a couple who were home group leaders in the church there 
came to me and asked for prayer uh, because they hadn't been able to have children. So, and that's, you know, often I pray for that. And so I, I said, but I've just felt the Holy Spirit say to me, ask them why they can't have children. So I asked them why they couldn't have children, expecting some sort of medical answer. And the woman said quite matter-of-factly, without any thinking she was saying anything strange, she said, because I killed a cobra when I was a teenager. So, of course, obvious, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) So I inquired a little bit more and found that in that culture, um, if a girl going through puberty kills a snake, they say she won't be able to have children. Now, I'm not saying that's general. That was just in that particular part. I won't say it's all over India, but in this particular area, that's what she'd always been told. Now, these were hungry leaders in the church, okay? But they'd never really thought this was, this was, you know, because, again, they'd heard teaching about all sorts of things, the grace of God, the kingdom of God, the Trinity, the the death of Christ for them, but they hadn't had teaching that tackled the strongholds of their culture. And so that's what she believed. So we prayed for her. We told her that this was not a godly way to think, that actually that that was simply a superstitious belief. And... So prayed for her, broke the power of it. And when I returned two years later to that place, there was one little child and a second one on the way. Okay, so we'd obviously broken that one. But you see, (laughs) they... So the stronghold in the culture was a superstitious stronghold, which they were still living their lives by. And it was still affecting her physical body. So you say, well, if she wasn't able to have children, does that mean it's true? No, it's that actually when you give yourself to believe something, that, has an effect, that can have an effect even on the physical body. Because they received the power of this demonic superstition. And it was strange. So I was praying with this couple with a leader, a pastor and his wife who were helping me from another part of India. They were in training there. And, uh, and so they said, you know, this was very interesting what happened. She said, we're not able to have children either. So I said, have you killed a cobra too? <laughs> no. Hey, I'm, I'm getting into this. And... Uh, <laughs> But she said, we didn't, where the part of India I, we came from, we didn't have that superstition. But she said, my mother told me that when a girl in puberty has her first period, they have to, has to burn the first rag, because otherwise a snake may go over it and she doesn't have children. She said, the problem was, when my mum told me that, 
I'd already had my first period and my mum didn't know. So I hadn't burnt the rag. And I remember thinking then, oh, does that mean I won't have children? She said, until this other, this other incident, she'd forgotten all about it. So she wasn't living, you know, the first person could give the, the answer, obviously why I can't have children is because I killed a, killed a cobra. But this other lady had forgotten completely about it. So we prayed, we broke the power of that stronghold and what her mother had said. And again, they've had two children, almost immediately. So, that, now, most of us can see very clearly that's a stronghold, can't we? Okay, let's move on. Because, but it's a good illustration of what we're talking about. Because culture and worldview affect the way we think in subtle ways. We can even look at scripture through the spectacles of our worldview. So, I remember reading of this guy in a place where certain things were regarded as very serious sins, but adultery was not regarded as a serious sin. And this guy was preaching about the importance of repentance, and he said, imagine how great David's repentance was for such a small sin. Now that horrifies us. Okay, but we can also look at scripture through the, uh, our culture. This is some of the stuff I've been teaching this week about culture, but we can look at scripture through that. So when we look at the story, for example, when most Westerners read the story of the friend at midnight, we think it actually is not very reasonable to, at midnight, go and knock on your neighbour's door and ask for some bread because a guest has come and you, weren't, didn't, and you hadn't got anything to eat for them. We would not, th you, know, we, you know, that to us is not reasonable. So we interpret that parable as, this is not reasonable. Actually, to an Easterner, and when I've preached this in the East, they all say this is obvious, Nobody would say, if a guest came to a village, nobody would make silly excuses about the children in bed and the door locked. It's almost a joke. Nobody would do that. And even if he would not get up and give to him because it's his friend, because of his not wanting to be put to shame, he would give up everything. He would give him everything he wants. So what Jesus is saying, so Jesus says, so ask and you'll receive. So it fits the context. That actually nobody would make those sort of silly excuses. But we look at that scripture through our culture. And we're unconscious of the strongholds that build up in our own cultures. Now... The situation in every culture is this, that because of the fall of man, all cultures are fallen 
and therefore demonic strongholds have been erected in them all. Also, all cultures reflect something of the image of God, which is still in all people. So all cultures are fallen, all, all cultures reflect the image of God. And so when we're, I, I've been teaching a lot on this this week, but uh, it's not what I'm going to major on now, but when we're building multicultural, multi-ethnic churches, therefore, we have to recognise what are the strongholds in each culture, but, more, but we start not there, we start with what is there in each culture that reflects something of the glory and image of God, and we approach it that way, then we say, and what are the strongholds in that culture? Do you, do you see what I mean? It's that way round. Because in every culture, there are the situation in all cultures, firstly, are that there are things that make the culture open to the gospel. And when you're reaching a different culture, I'm just, I just so love teaching on this, I'm going to have a five-minute diversion on it, that, uh, that when you're approaching a culture, then you're asking the question, what in this culture makes the people open to the gospel? Um, it can sometimes, if it's a very relational culture, then what makes a culture open to the gospel is that they love to spend time with you. And as you spend time and trust and respect is gained, then they'll listen to what you say. That's the way of openness to the gospel. Um, even cultures which really may be tough to get into. How many of you read the book Peace Child? Nobody. Oh, one of the best missionary books, okay? Peace Child by... Oh, I've forgotten. Anyway. <laughs> if I gave you the name on... But he... He was recording the story of a particular tribal people that he went to and he told them, the, eventually learned the language, told them the gospel story and they were very enthusiastic. But then he realised that when they, as they talked about their enthusiasm for this amazing story, he found that the highest value in that culture was treachery, particularly the betrayal of a friend. <laughs> so they were all willing to give their lives to Judas. Okay. <laughs> they saw him as the hero of the story. So he now understood why they were getting so excited. So how can I present the gospel <laughs> to a people that when you tell the store, the store, the, the, when you tell the gospel story, think that Judas is the hero. <laughs> then he found that villages in these tribes would often go to war against each other or have conflict with each other. And, and he discovered that the, the only way of stopping the conflict was that one village would send a small child to the next village called the peace child. And when this peace child arrived, they understood 
that the other village wanted to make peace and that would be the result. So, he preached on the basis of God has sent his peace child into this world. You see, there's always way things that make a culture open to the gospel. Um, but there's plenty of strongholds. Then there's, secondly, neutral factors, or better, I think now, factors which reflect something of the image of God, which illustrate the variety of his creation, and when redeemed, demonstrate his multicoloured wisdom. Okay, God is more honoured in variety than uniformity, because that reflects him. Okay. Then thirdly, each culture has strongholds which need to be demolished. Okay. The problem is, there's a blindness in our own culture. Okay. Now, I think most of you had no problem in discerning the stronghold in the Cobra story. Would that be fair? Okay. But it is much harder to discern the strongholds in our own culture. And whenever I'm teaching, if I've been asked to do a, let me say a few things. If I've been asked to do a strongholds conference, I'm not asked to do a conference on demolishing strongholds, but they want me to cover cultural issues. I won't do that until I've really learned about the culture. So when I started ministering to the Russians, they said, come and do a spiritual warfare seminar on strongholds. They said, that brings people in. You know, <laughs> at that time, it was a very fashionable subject when I first got involved in Russia. And uh, I said, no. They said, well, you've written a book on that. Yeah, I said, but I haven't yet learned Russian culture. So I'm not going to presuppose with arrogance that I can approach your culture, a culture that I'm going to be working with for the next 10 years or more, and it's already been more than that, until I've really learned it. Now, I eventually did do strongholds seminars in their culture, about their culture, but that was after I'd learned it for a long time. Now, because... And other places, like I was invited to do it in Mexico once, and so I said, okay, they just want to just come over and do a stronghold seminar. Okay, well, it's your risk, you've invited me. So, uh, and it wasn't the place I had an ongoing relationship with, so I can escape. And uh, <laughs> so what I did then, I simply read everything I could in the, in the few months before I went. I spent my first two or three days, I, we hired a secular anthropologist to show us around all the traditional sites so that he could keep explaining all their culture to me. And then I did the conference. Um, the other thing I always do, if I was going to a culture uh, that I didn't know something about but wanted to help them about the strongholds in their culture, I always talk about the strongholds in my culture first. Otherwise, I'm in danger of doing the speck out of my brother's eye when there's a plank in mine. And so that's, again, what I've done. And 
I, I often tell this particular story. That one of the huge problems in building church and in dealing with this issue is cultural superiority. Many, many have it. Okay? And uh, with English culture, it's a particular issue. With European culture, it's a particular issue. And I think now with American culture, it's a particular issue. And so, if we're going to deal with cultural issues, we have to deal with that. So I tell the story. I remember telling this in Africa once. And I loved it. I said, uh, there was a, 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 a couple, um, they were planting a new church. And they had moved from a very nice place. I don't know if you understand that English expression. Nice place, you know. Uh, to a more industrial place. And she said, I kept... She said, oh, that's what they'd done. Then she's talking to me about these splitting headaches that she kept getting. And she said she thinks it's because she was present in Africa at some point when they did some ceremony. And she thinks this is why she, she must have been affected and got these headaches. And I began to talk to her. I talked to her a bit about her. I asked about her family history, and then I, I asked about how she finds this place she's gone to. She said, I don't like it. She said, you know, it's, it's dirty. And she started finding fault with the place that they'd gone to plant a church. All the others in the same nation. And then I asked about her father. Her father was a colonial ad administrator in Africa. And she, I then talked about it. I said, yeah, what, what's your, how did your father regard the people? And she said he was always criticising them. He was always saying they don't do this properly, they don't do that. Blah, blah, blah. And I said, I think the problem, actually, that you are, is not particularly this ceremony you attended. It's actually that you have a feeling of superiority that's even manifesting in going to a different town. So I'm going to pray about that. wasn't quite the way she expected. <laughs> but <laughs> I prayed and a demon came out. It was the demon of the colonial Englishman who always thinks he's right. Okay. <laughs> There's loads of those around. And I, I say, I told, I, the introduction to a stronghold seminar in a part of Africa that I've been asked to do, and uh, I was primarily going to obviously deal with things that they'd asked me to deal with in their own culture, but I told this story first, and they loved it. Okay, they'd met a few of them. <laughs> and this... In certain cultures, this almost innate feeling of judging everything else by our own situation is a massive stronghold. 
And it stops us building multi-ethnic churches. It stops us really serving other places. It even can hinder people in mission to other nations. Do you understand? And it's a strong, it's a cultural stronghold. In Britain now, it's sort of mixed because we feel superior underneath, but we actually criticise ourselves all the time on the top and tell jokes against ourselves. Um, so it's, it's sort of mixed. But underneath, we judge other cultures. Okay. And so one of the things we need to do whether when we're, when, when we're looking to walk free of strongholds, when we're looking to work multiculturally into di different ethnic groups, is say, Lord, before I try and deal with issues in the culture I'm reaching with the gospel, please show me the, what the stronghold's in mine. Okay? We must start that way. And you often need the other culture you're reaching to help you discern the strongholds in yours. Well, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> not because I fear being stoned, <laughs> but because it would, it would be presumptuous of me on the basis of watching the odd cricket match and meeting Pete Brooks, to, <laughs> to, to, to discern what yours are. If I had time to study, if I'd spent several visits here, I would be free to do that. But I'd always want to learn first. Therefore, I'm, not, I'm going to talk about strongholds in Western culture, because Australians will be affected by them like we are. But there will be specific strongholds that you will then need to look at if you're to build multi-ethnic churches here. And the British here and the South Africans here and all the other nations here have to do the same thing. Do you understand? So it's an issue which we always approach with humility. Um, and so... Because I've not studied it, I'm not going to say it. Sorry to disappoint you, you know. If I came again and had time to study the subject, then perhaps I would. <laughs> but what I'm saying is quite deliberate. I did not have time or opportunity to spend lots of time studying Australian culture or one of the Australian cultures. Now you're a multi-ethnic place and always have been. Okay. Okay. You've always been multi-ethnic. But... Those who come latterly tend to mistreat those who were there first and then justify it 
on the grounds of, and I'm, not, I'm using these words with inverted commas, civilizing. Okay. Now, so I'm not going to, therefore, pinpoint lots of things, but I would say that and I, again, I quoted this during the week. But one of the... I read a secular commentator who wrote a book called Black Sea, because that's one of the areas I work around the Black Sea. And uh, on the other side of the Black Sea, from uh, in, the, in what is now southern Russia, where I'm working, lived the Scythians, who are referred to in the Bible, as you well know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and... Paul, when, he, when Paul was trying to deal with situations um, between, Greek, between Jew and Gentile, he would say neither Jew nor, Gen, neither Jew nor Greek. When he's trying to deal with a primarily Greek situation, he said neither, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither Jew nor Greek, nor barbarian, nor Scythian. Okay. Because he was dealing there with Greek superiority. He'd already dealt with Jewish superiority. We, you know, we're the people of God, and therefore there wasn't the bringing in of the nations. But he then deals with Greek superiority because he cannot stand in the light of the gospel going to all nations, racial superiority of any kind. And this secular writer commented, when Greek met Scythian, began the idea of Europe with all its arrogance and with all its assumption of a natural right to dominate. Okay. Now, in European or... European descent cultures. See, I'm not going to deal with your strongholds. But in, <laughs> in European and European descent cultures, there is an assumption of a natural right to dominate, which is thoroughly unbiblical and which Paul dealt with when he was writing to the Colossians, and said, don't have that. And yet it's been there. Does that begin to answer your question? Very much so. <laughs> so, the... So I'm going to deal with um, Western cultures, but we just must bear that in mind. There's a judgmentalism about us. And we have to humbly acknowledge that and ask others to help us set, get set free from it. But there is also <coughs> the stronghold of the Western worldview which is 
I only accept what I can see and understand. <coughs> science proves it. Yes, but science doesn't answer the questions that are asked about faith. But we assume it does. So we, we only accept what I can see and understand. Intellect and analysis is exalted above faith, even Bible colleges. Okay? So if we can analyse a scripture, then we're fine. Whether we have faith for it almost comes, comes secondarily. Okay? That's the Western worldview. If you've been to a conference on prophecy, you are thereby prophetic. Because you've got all the notes about it. <laughs> you've written them all down. You might never prophesy, but you understand all about prophecy. Because you've got a notebook full of it. <laughs> and you can explain when someone's prophecy isn't balanced. <laughs> or <laughs> is not quite right. You're good on prophecy. You may never prophesy, you never ever open to the Holy Spirit, but you've got it all. You know all about spiritual gifts. You can define all nine of them. If you take a Pentecostal paradigm of nine spiritual gifts, which I don't, but <laughs> you, can, you can explain all nine of them, you know, and give real good definitions. You can argue with those who, have a, who explain the nine differently. Do you exercise them? Well, not really. But you know it about, about it. That's the Western worldview. Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Now, we have to be a little bit careful with that scripture if we try and therefore demean intellect. We're not demeaning intellect, nor is Paul. There's a slight irony about what Paul's saying there because actually, if you read carefully, his whole case, it's like, you know, uh, his whole case is carefully and wisely and brilliantly argued. But what he's saying is that actually, even with that, it's not enough. God rather chooses the weak things of the cross and, and so on to confound the wise and the strong, you know? And so he says, my message is not essentially wise and persuasive words, though Paul was a pretty good explainer of things but with a demonstration of God's power. Through the cross, through human weakness, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that cuts against the Western worldview, where we applaud what can be uh, simply excellently and rationally argued. Do you understand? Okay, so we need to get free of that one, don't we? It's often why there's a battle of faith for healing. 
You know, often people will say to me, why is it that in some nations you go to, people seem to get healed more easily than back at home? Answer, the stronghold of the Western worldview. Which still, you know, so if you hear of someone healed, you're still part of your mind waiting to hear that they didn't keep it. It's still part of our mind waiting for that. It's awful. I'm glad of all the ones, you know, I just have seen people who've healed and remained healed and, ah, hallelujah. But there's something in us that is undermining that all the time. And we have to deal with it and step out from it because it's a stronghold in our culture. Yeah. Next, the stronghold of self-centeredness. You might say, well, isn't this in all cultures? Yeah, a bit, but actually... There's a, it means, self-centeredness means the pursuit of pleasure becomes our greatest goal and what we live for. Basically, it means I have a right to be in charge of my own life. No, God does. Many today get saved but have a self-centered lifestyle where no time for worship, teaching, witnessing, training and basic Christian discipleship. We can even, oh, sorry, we can even get saved primarily as an insurance policy for us when we die, rather than the fact that we are compelled by the glory of God to not only get our sins forgiven, but be part of living for his glory now here on earth. Sometimes even the gospel we preach is consumerist and self-centred. You understand? And so there's a consumerist attitude to church. So, indeed, I've even heard it taught that churches need to find out the felt needs of people. Well, if you're thinking of an evangelistic strategy, that might be okay. But part of their conversion experience needs to be away from felt needs to living for the glory of God. Understand? Yeah, so sometimes people say to me, well, I left that church. Oh, yeah, why did you leave that church? Well, didn't meet my needs anymore. Hallelujah. It was never intended to. (laughs) (laughs) It's not there to meet your needs. It's there where you can have the wonderful privilege of joining with others for the glory of God and the evangelization of your nation. (laughs) That's what, isn't it? But consumerism, you know, just like, I don't know the stores out here, you know, but if one store doesn't supply your needs, well, simple. You go to another one. And if one store consistently doesn't supply lots of people's needs, they eventually go bust, but that doesn't matter because it's someone else. That's consumerism. And it comes in the attitude to church as well. Even the therapeutic movement. I mean, I believe in counselling because I've been teaching on it all this weekend. But it can become me-centred so much rather than I can be more effective in Christian service 
Okay? Then in Western culture, there's the stronghold of individualism. In the West, we think individualistically or at best nuclear family. Whereas in biblical times, you belonged corporately. If you were a part of the nation of Israel, you belonged to a clan, you belonged to a tribe, and you belonged to the nation. There was that sense of corporate belonging. And even our English language can affect this. So, if you read that scripture, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Okay? How do we think when we read that scripture? What do we think it's meaning? Don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Exactly. Well done. That's how the Western mind interprets that scripture. I mustn't get drunk. I must be filled with the Spirit. Actually, what that scripture is teaching, you is plural, it is teaching, don't as a community, in your community times, get drunk with wine, but as a community, be filled with the Spirit so that you speak to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, etc. That's what it's saying. Do you, do you understand? But we immediately think individualistically. And the context is obvious, isn't it? Singing to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. In fact, the NIV makes some different sentences. Be filled with the Spirit, speak to one another. Actually, in the Greek, it's be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another, singing and making music wholeheartedly to the Lord, always giving thanks. It's a corporate exercise. It's a corporate enjoyment. It's being the Spirit of God, being amongst us as together. But we interpret it individually. It's contrary to the heart of God. God exists in perfect community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's created us for community. His heart is that believers express that unity. Now, more corporate cultures understand this more readily than English people or Australian people. Okay. They, they instinctively feel it. Also, our sort of churches still can't quite provide the community needed, say, for a Muslim that gets thrown out of his family because he follows Christ. Because we don't have that sort of community. It's a stronghold. Sorry about this, folks. But I'm not talking about Australian strongholds, all right? I'm simply talking about Western ones. Personal fulfillment, through individualism, personal fulfillment in ministry or life becomes an almost idolatrous objective. We are here primarily to serve, not to be fulfilled. Well, I'm not fulfilled. Who says you're meant to be? <laughs> Doesn't say be fulfilled in Jesus' name anywhere, does it? We serve and... If we truly understand that servanthood, then actually a sense of accomplishment and therefore fulfillment follows. 
but the objective is not that I'm fulfilled. Also, servanthood and submission to godly anointing is undermined. We're to be servants as leaders and those in the church, considering each other better than ourselves, submitting to one another and to be under authority to serve with effective authority. Individualism undermines that. And personal preference, culture, nationality and even race are exalted. Whereas God wants his body to reflect the back breakdown of barriers between races. To be a demonstration to the principalities and powers of how wise God is. Because nothing else has been able to unite the, nation, the races other than the cross and the church. You understand? And it says... God intends through his church to demonstrate his uh, wisdom to the principalities and powers. That's a spiritual warfare scripture. It's what demonstrates to the principalities and powers. And what it is, is that in the church, nations can come together, whereas nothing else has made nations come together. I just rejoice whenever I can bring... Uh, nations together for the sake of the gospel. It's just because nothing else can do it. I remember not long after the, uh, the Kosovo War. Uh, you know about that, don't you? Okay, good. Okay, and I took a Serb brother, who leads one of our Serbian churches, with me on a team to Albania to serve the churches there. They loved it. It was great to see just after the war, Albanian and Serb serving together. Only in the church. Elsewhere it's peacekeeping forces, or you've got to keep them apart. You know, you know I applaud what the United Nations has tried to do there, but the United Nations can't deal with the, be- with the deeper problem. We had a slightly unfortunate incident. This guy, this Serb guy, spoke excellent English, so... And because he's married, although they live in Serbia, lead to Serbian church, but he's married to a, uh, an English woman and therefore has a British passport and therefore shows that when he goes into Albania. It's just wisdoms like Paul saying, I'm a Roman citizen. And uh, so, not that I'm equating Britain with Rome, but the... Um, and we got into this taxi to take us all the way from one city to another. And the, the driver, he spoke a little bit of English. He assumed we were both English guys in the back. And he talked about how he was a... He said, I'm an extremist Albanian nationalist. I want to drive all Serbs out of their territory. And this was an interesting journey. But <laughs> he never found out. Okay, then I've just got two more, but I'll only have time for one. The stronghold of mammon. Now, again, that's pretty strong everywhere, but it is Jesus uses in Luke 16, 13, you cannot serve both God and money, it's often translated, but actually the word is mammon, because it is describing a principality. 
Okay, it's almost, had, it's almost having its own idolatrous identity. And you cannot serve both things. And its effects, greed and covetousness or idolatry, I don't think... Now, the Bible says greed is idolatry. Worship of mammon is idolatry. But I'm not sure that we quite see it that way from a Western perspective. We say, no, it's just, it's just a wonderful outworking of capitalism. Okay. Now, I'm not getting into a political debate about that. But the Bible says, you know, so people say, well, you can't, you can't buck the market. It rules. Yeah, it rules. It's a principality. It rules. <laughs> the Old Testament, which presented God's ideal for when people moved into their land, had an amazing economy, which was neither unbridled capitalism nor socialism, because it somehow enabled all sorts of things. So people, if they were lazy and didn't work hard, they lost out. But every seven years, their debts were forgiven. That's pretty radical, isn't it? Cope with that, eh? <laughs> then, if one family, the, the, the father was feckless or fell on hard times and couldn't quite cope, well, his Land we bought out by somebody else for every 50 years, so the next generation never suffered from the mistakes of the previous generation. It went back to the original people. Incredible. So it didn't create socialist dependency, but it didn't say the market rules, because that's a principality. Do you understand? Okay. Now, these are a few cultural strongholds um, and it's all we have time for now I want to give you a break because you've been listening well after lunch and uh, not too many people nodded off <laughs> okay by the way if the person next to you nods off that's what elbows are for <laughs> That's why God created elbows. Go on. Okay, so we're going to have a half-hour break, then we'll do a little bit of teaching, and we'll worship God again, and we'll minister to each other, and we'll uh, equip people by the Spirit as well as by the Word to do this work, and any things that need praying about, we'll pray about. All right? Okay, so half an hour break. <laughs>